0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagro Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is Randy Schreiber, a former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo Pacific Security Affairs. He is with the Pacific Solutions Consultancy and also the chairman of the Project 2049 Institute to fully normalize relations between the United States and Taiwan. Randy, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for having me back. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our Global Coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our Weekly Cyber Report, and Northrop Grumman sponsors our Cyber Coverage Overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our Coverage of Strategy. HII sponsored our Coverage of the Navy League's Annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show, and Bell sponsored our Coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium Randy thanks so much for joining us again everybody uh, over the last 8 weeks of this conflict has been uh, trying to make parallels right i mean what is the international community doing uh, to support ukraine against russia and what does uh, all of this mean in terms of uh, america and its allies and partners ability to defend uh, taiwan uh, in in many respects from from your standpoint what are the ukraine uh, lessons the uh, war lessons that are relevant uh, for Taiwan right now, because I know everybody in in Taipei, as long as as well as its allies and partners, right up to the White House, are focused on the same issue.
1: It's a great question, and I suspect, uh, as is typical in Washington, we're all being asked for the lessons and and the takeaways, while in fact we're still absorbing the information as it comes in. That's true in Beijing, in Taipei, and in Washington. But look, I think uh, up front the. PLA, and I don't know if that translates directly to CCP leadership at the Xi Jinping level, but the PLA has to have some amount of pause given how difficult this operation has turned out to be for the Russian military, and they don't have 80 nautical miles of water to cross. So whether or not they would suffer the same incompetencies and same difficulties, uh, they started a higher degree of difficulty on a Taiwan invasion. So perhaps they are getting some realistic dose of how difficult this operation would be. I think for Taipei, they understand a number of things, probably uh, first and foremost, how important leadership is. You know, they focus for a long time on continuity of government and sustaining communications and and the like uh, in the event of a crisis. I'm sure that only underscores the importance of Tsai Ing-wen being, if it were near term or her successor, if it were later, being able to... Uh, maintain control and, and be a competent governing authority in the midst of crisis and being able to communicate with the people of Taiwan and with the outside world. Think how uh, often Zelensky's been able to address foreign parliaments and, and uh, international media. I even saw him uh, speak to the uh, Grammys. So uh, that's a lesson I'm sure Taiwan is taking away. And for us, uh, we have to be very sober-minded about this Integrated deterrence, which we hear a lot about, failed. We did not deter Russia. Now, the the price that we are able to impose uh, post facto may itself serve as a deterrence for other would-be aggressors like China, but we have to think in advance how we strengthen integrated deterrence, make the cost imposition clear in advance, how we can get other countries to commit to some sort of cost imposition before the fact, which, is, of course, is difficult in Taiwan's case, given that it's an unofficial relationship. And that's before we even begin to address the defense questions. And there's certainly plenty of those to, to think about. But I, those are the initial things I would say for uh, three of the main players in this, crisis, in this uh, potential conflict.
0: I mean, from the administration's perspective, right? I mean, we're building the integrated defense train and you know, if everybody had to do it over again would probably have, have have maybe done it a little bit differently. But but ultimately, right, the aid is flowing to Ukraine, uh, thankfully now. And 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 it's good news that we're increasing the pace of that aid. But absolutely right, it didn't stop Russia from going in. And indeed leaving troops on the ground there would have been uh, Might have been a better option, as some of our allies and partners have been discussing as well. What what is the what does the tightness of alignment, Randy, between Beijing and Moscow mean for uh, Taiwan ultimately? Right. I mean, the Chinese are not backing away from the Russians at all, uh, and are trying to have their cake and eat it too. What what does that uh, alliance uh, just before the Beijing Olympics mean for Taiwan?
1: Well, it, it's it's not good, and I think uh, marginally would make things more difficult uh, with Russia as a at least um, uh, passive supporter of Beijing in the event of an attack on Taiwan. But look, Russia is going to be weakened. Russia is not going to have a lot of international credibility. So I think that the uh, possibility that they'd be an active participant in aiding Beijing in its invasion of Taiwan is is, is relatively low. But they they could certainly provide support in uh, international fora, put pressure on Countries uh, that would be additive to the pressure that China would put on countries to stay out and and not get involved. Um, So I think there's, you know, on the margins, this should be concerning to Taiwan and the United States. But I I think Russia is going to emerge, even if victorious, even if they accomplish their political objectives in Ukraine, a, a much weakened, diminished country.
0: You know, there was a lot of talk after this invasion that actually the most upset people in the world were in Beijing because this gives everybody uh, globally an opportunity to step up their game, right? France has been one of our European allies who's talked uh, and helped persuade the EU that China is uh, is a major threat. Obviously, France, a nation that has a lot of interests and a couple of million citizens that live uh, in in the region, how how does the global response to the Ukraine war? change Beijing's planning, do you think, regarding Taiwan? I mean, right, is 2027 still the date? Obviously, the centenary of the People's Liberation Army, uh, you know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, maybe not senior government officials, but academics close to the government have said, hey, look, we're trying to get this wrapped up, and whoever gets in our way, we're going to fight. How does the world's response, the administration's response to Ukraine change, you think, the calculus in Beijing
1: toward Taiwan, if at all? Well, the CCP leadership, their goal has always been to win without fighting. And for understandable reasons, even if successful, an actual war would be costly in terms of blood and treasure. But I think what the response has done is is made very clear the economic, diplomatic, political costs that would be associated with an operation, even if successful. So perhaps that changes the calculus we want to win without fighting we want to uh uh double down on those efforts to isolate taiwan in advance of any kind of military uh, operation and that may take some more time um taiwan is in an awkward position in that it doesn't have diplomatic allies with it, di- diplomatic ties with its most important partners like the united states japan uh the eu um but it still has strong support there and i think for beijing they will want to make sure the, the, the road is relatively clear for them when it comes to costs that would be imposed for an operation in advance. So I, I would expect to see a lot of these uh, coercive uh, tactics, what we're seeing in, in Lithuania, what we're seeing in Australia, a lot of that will intensify before Beijing would consider a, a military operation, I believe.
0: Um, And I should point out, as we are recording this, President Biden has announced uh, a $33 billion uh, uh, support package uh, for uh, Ukraine, uh, saying that backing Ukraine is not cheap, but that the United States uh, can't uh, stand by. So obviously that breaking as we're having this conversation. Um, Yes. So do, do you think, I mean, ultimately, does this so does this do, it, it could do one of two things, right, uh, Randy? I mean, it could uh, tell Beijing, um, wow, let's, let's lengthen our time horizon. And I appreciate, right, win without fighting, try to pressure this, try to seize every opportunity, build that bridge, right? I mean, with enough matchsticks, you can actually end up with the Golden Gate Bridge if you're methodical enough. Um, or does this actually dramatically accelerate Chinese planning and go, wow, you know, in another five years or in another two years, they could, they could really be able to stop us. And so our window of action actually needs to be sooner rather than later. Do you think that that's a danger in this at all? Of miscalculation?
1: I, d- I, I think it's a danger. Uh, and I suspect to the extent there is honest debate among the Central Military Commission, CCP leadership, you would probably find people representing both points of view. The question is what does Xi Jinping take away from this? Uh, I think his opportunities to move at at a a political level, his opportunities to move sooner rather than later are are somewhat constrained. Um, He's got this uh, uh, Communist Party uh, leadership meeting in the fall, the Party Congress in the fall, where uh, supposedly he's cementing his uh, follow on term as General Secretary and President. So President for Life, General Secretary for Life is uh, hanging in the balance somewhat. Uh, so he wants a smooth uh, process to see that to fruition. Uh, he's got uh, he's got to think about a Taiwan election coming up. Um, you know, the win without fighting approach is greatly assisted if uh, parties come to power who are more inclined to deal with Beijing uh, in an accommodationist fashion. Uh, I think the constituency for that in Taiwan is relatively small, but there's still a voice for that. There's still elections to come up. and uh, I'm sure they're, Somewhat interested in in what post Ing-wen uh, Taiwan political landscape looks like, uh, and then there, there's the questions of capabilities. You know, even Phil Davidson's uh, now famous six-year window, which a year later is a five-year window. That's still five years. That's that's not tomorrow. That's not next month. Next year. Um, they still have some serious questions as to whether or not they could pull this off in the in the short term. And I think all those things combined uh, lead me to think it's it's unlikely but it's still quite dangerous. And, and you're right, there may be people giving voice to the opinion we need to move quicker.
0: And, uh, right, uh, you, you uh, joined us, you know, I think you're one of the people who doesn't think that what President Biden said was an accident uh, regarding Taiwan uh, twice, we've seen that uh, the president has done that. And eventually, we find out that actually, that is what he thought, for example, let's get, you know, that, you um, You know, somebody get rid of Putin doesn't mean the United States has to get rid of it, but that we will continue to have this problem as long as he's in office. Do you think that statements like that from the administration and the president in particular um, do put that measure of doubt into, right? I mean, because the ultimate decision maker in this is Xi Jinping, um, and autocrats have a tendency of listening to the leader, right? Do, Do you think that statements like that are actually helping us buy time? Do you think by putting enough doubt in Chinese minds that uh, wait a minute. The United States actually might step up and do something here.
1: Yeah. So if you look at it from the point of view of a an objective a, a analyst in Beijing in Zhongnanhai, uh, I I would say this person is seeing President Biden accidentally speak the truth or speak his mind, uh, seeing uh, Congress getting very active on how we can improve Taiwan's defenses, enhance deterrence by expediting. Uh, military support. You're seeing, you know, at the uh, uh, sort of uh, academic uh, uh, thought leader level, Richard Haas saying end of strategic ambiguity. I think there's enough doubt for an objective analyst to say, well, you know, we can't count on keeping the U.S. out of this, deterring the U.S., countering their intervention. What's unclear is, and and, Vago, your question had this embedded, uh, what does Xi Jinping think? Does he, is he, creating the forums to be able to listen to objective advice and opinions or not um, I think he he is experienced enough in, in the various positions he's held to, to have a, a sophisticated understanding of the military balance and the challenge at hand uh, but whether or not you know uh, that's been clouded over the years of his uh, tenure as emperor I don't know
0: tenure uh, tenure as emperor. That's actually a good one. Uh, speaking of uh, emperor, um, we have two uh, autocratic systems. One of them is a kleptocracy. The other one is, uh, you know, uh, is an ideological uh, autarchy um, or autocracy. Um, one has performed shambolically, right? I mean, Russia's military performance in Ukraine is is absolutely stunning. In, in fairness, there were a lot of allied allies and partners that are working behind the scenes to make sure that Humpty Dumpty falls off that wall uh, every single day, but you know the Ukrainian forces are fighting well and the Russians are making a lot of mistakes, um, irrespective of whether or not uh, they're we're getting help in the West or, or the West is helping corner Russia. From your standpoint, what are some of these operational lessons that you think carry over? Because Just because one autocracy is not doing well does not necessarily mean the other autocracy will do poorly. Right. right, What do you, what do you see in terms of parallels, similarities, lessons? What do you see as actually because the Chinese are actually, you know, incredibly focused on logistics. Uh, the Chinese are trying to step up amphibious. Right, I mean, there was a major amphibious exercise last week. Um, the Chinese, for example, study the Falklands conflict particularly. Right, Britain had to sail eight thousand miles to, yep. you know, take back an island five hundred miles off off of the invaders' coast. How, how do you see sort of the dynamic elements of this? What's same, what's not Russia-Ukraine lessons that are completely inapplicable to a Taiwan scenario?
1: Yeah, uh, with a uh, pro-British population in the Falklands, by the way, which is a big difference between Ukraine, big difference uh, with Taiwan. Um, yeah, look, I think at, at a sort of strategic level, they should take away how difficult this really can be and the notion that a quick strike uh, fait accompli uh you, you at a minimum you can't count on that um i take your point that they are more competent at logistics at least they're more focused on it and spend time on it and so presumably their their soldiers sailors and airmen are not going to war with mres that have been expired for for years um, but one thing that uh you know, it's very difficult to assess because it's a, as, as Rumsfeld used to say, a known unknown. Is, you know, what the fog of war, what the complexity of, of conflict might mean for a PLA that hasn't seen combat since 1979. And by the way, even post reform, you know, still highly centralized decision making, uh, particularly one would presume in an environment where the information uh, feedback loop. Brings uh, some amount of bad inf- bad, bad news uh, in addition to whatever good news might be there. You know how can they perform in an agile, flexible way uh, in a in a combat environment? That's a that's a pretty big known unknown, and uh, you know it gives me the the confidence that there are things to exploit. There's things you know even if we're disadvantaged by always fighting in a away game, uh, disadvantaged just by sheer numbers. Uh, that there are still things to exploit and still ways to, see, to, to sow doubt in the minds of the PLA leadership, if not Xi Jinping himself.
0: Uh, Randy, I know uh, your, your time is short with us. And so I have, I have uh, two uh, quick questions to ask. Uh, one is uh, the, uh, the takeaways from uh, the delegation uh, the United States, uh, retired United States Navy Admiral Mike Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff led uh, Michelle Flournoy was on the team, our mutual friend, uh, Mike Green uh, was on it, Evan Medeiros, uh, Michelle Flournoy. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what the group uh, accomplished, uh, do you think, because uh, we're seeing more lawmakers uh, going over there, uh, we're seeing uh, Europe certainly changing soon right I mean how is this, What what did that, what did that delegation mean, what did they accomplish. And is it actually, from a tectonic sense, helping move the world's needle uh, on on Taiwan?
1: Well, I think it was a positive move from the Biden administration. Uh, It was a very impressive delegation in terms of it's bipartisan, senior level people. And by the way, being led by a former chairman who is not known to be an Asianist or Taiwan specialist is in itself interesting, uh, because where where does he have credibility? Well, it's in warfighting and it's in uh, building proper defenses for the purposes of deterrence. So I think the primary mission was reassurance and communication that the United States, uh, despite what happened uh, in our withdrawal from Afghanistan, despite... Now remember, it was planned before the Ukraine invasion, so this was as much about uh, developments in South Asia as it is in uh, Europe. Um, It was uh, designed to say, you know, we remain committed across the board to our law and and the various elements of that. And and at that level, I think it was largely successful. Um, For deterrence to be bolstered uh, in meaningful ways, that kind of, uh, engagement needs to be sustained. And you rightfully point out members of Congress have been going. I'd like to see senior administration officials go, um, cabinet level people go, which is, of course, there's strong precedent for that uh, across administrations. Um, so not this, just
0: not just not just Kirk Campbell, right? The secretary of state, the secretary of defense.
1: Well, that would break precedent. I'm not saying that that would be a bad thing to do. But we've had uh, secretaries of transportation, of health and human services, of energy, those are the kind of people that could be sent without setting new precedent. Um, Getting into uh, defense and state portfolio would be, uh, I think, interesting. Um, But the point is, you know, as as strong a delegation as Admiral Mullen led, uh, they're all formers. And so at some level, I'd like to see that reinforced by official level engagement.
0: Let me ask you one uh, last question and then that's about uh, capability. Uh, you've uh, joined us uh, and to discuss this very question and indeed there's uh, debate and a lot of pressure on Taipei. Hey, don't, don't go for some signature sexy weapons. Let's actually help porcupine you. Let's help you make this more difficult. In fairness, an amphibious operation on Taiwan is like an amphibious operation against Norway. It is a very, very challenging piece of terrain to strike, even if you're good at the amphibious operation game. And so Taiwan does have a whole series of natural barriers uh, that help it. How is the debate and the discussion, and even the understanding from Taipei changing, that some of the sort of signature weapons, whether it's a focus on fighters or, or actually submarines, they might be better off investing in anti-ship missiles, mines, and a whole bunch of different portfolio items. Talk to us about how that debate and discussion is, is changing in terms of furnishing the Taiwanese very rapidly with the kind of capabilities they need to actually meaningfully, uh, more meaningfully deter uh, potential invasion, to serve as a deterrent effectively.
1: So there is a debate, which itself is encouraging. Uh, this is not uh, just a, a legacy um, uh, kind of outlook on the challenge where they do the same things they've done in the past. They are investing in some of the capabilities that have been identified in the overall defense concept as most effective for a counter-invasion capability. Uh, However, um, they still have uh, peacetime missions. They have to deal with coercion. They have to deal with gray zone. They have to deal with a lot of things in in so-called phase zero that if they don't address them, Ironically, it makes the uh, possibility of conflict even, even more uh, likely. So you can't ignore uh, peacetime needs and, and the counter coercion capabilities. So somewhere in there, they've got to land in the right place. And, and I'm not opposed to them. I mean, if, if you only plan against the most dangerous scenario, um, which also may be the most unlikely scenario, uh, you pull that thread far enough, Taiwan has no air force. Well, I think they need an air force and I think they need F-16s. I do think they need uh, a range of capabilities to intercept Chinese fighters, to deal with incursions uh, on, on the surface from uh, PLA Navy, Coast Guard, maritime militia. So it's finding the right mix. And I am encouraged that the debate is underway and more sophisticated than, than it's probably been in the past. Uh, but we need to need to have a, a little bit of patience as a as a country that supports Taiwan as, as these things get sorted out. And uh, I, I am a bit concerned that we see so much urgency that we're going to become overly directive in our security assistance. And, and we're going to end up uh, with tension in the relationship rather than one that's truly cooperative and, and collaborative when it comes to bolstering deterrence.
0: Uh, agreed. Uh, thirty seconds. Uh, Penming uh, Min uh, passed away uh, last month. Uh, I knew I know you knew him, uh, obviously a staunch advocate uh, for Taiwanese uh, independence. What does his passing mean and and what is uh, the legacy he's leaving? Um, and how is that interpreted now as there's greater Taiwanese national identity, something that he fought for? Uh, while understanding that the Declaration of Independence would be a red line and would be something difficult to do, sort of give us your sense on what the man's
1: legacy was. Well, a remarkable life, and if you look back, uh, you know, even further from his uh, pro-independence activities on Taiwan. I mean, this is a this is a guy who witnessed the uh, uh, atomic uh, strike on Nagasaki when he was uh, recovering from his own injuries, trying to get outside of Tokyo, get to uh, his brother near uh, Nagasaki. In any event, a remarkable life. Um, Look, I do think he is a a part of a remarkable generation that promoted Taiwanese identity, Taiwanese independence. Uh, But their problem wasn't with mainland China. Their problem was with the Kuomintang and the nationalist forces that were oppressing the indigenous Taiwanese. As this has all unfolded with political liberalization and, and reform, democratization on Taiwan. The independent-minded Taiwanese are of, of the new generation are different than Peng Mingmin min and, and his colleagues. Uh, they were born into a world where Taiwan has always been independent and has always had a different identity and a different cultural and national experience than uh, mainland China. So, uh, you know, when Tsai Ing-wen says we don't need to declare independence because we're already independent, which, by the way, is the same line that Ma ying used, they're mm-hmm. actually reflecting a different kind of independent-minded Taiwanese than than Peng Min-min's generation. I think um, uh, he and his... Uh, colleagues uh, should rest in peace with a very strong legacy of promoting reform and freedom and democracy in Taiwan. But it's on to a new generation and and the the fight is a little bit different.
0: And I should also say, that he was uh, among the staunchest advocates for democracy uh, for Taiwan, not just representation for native Formosans, but uh, uh, oh, but, yeah. but also for Formosans. I used an old-fashioned term there, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Randy, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much, and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Fargo. look forward to it.